All right, welcome back to RUF. And I'm probably going to be near the mic tonight because my voice is not doing great. And so I'll stay close to it in case it goes on me and so I don't have to talk so loud. Many of you have asked about my wife, Susie. She is here, no baby yet, but we are in holding, literally, uh, any day now, uh, maybe any moment now. And so if I have to race out of here, uh, sing the doxology again, and we can go home because that was absolutely beautiful. If you have your Bible, turn with me. I've been basically just picking stories that I've been wanting to study and teach on. Um, Since my wife is having a baby, I'm taking liberty to do whatever in the heck I want. So, Luke 15 is what we're going to be looking at tonight. It was the middle of the summer, extremely hot, way too hot to be walking around the Birmingham Zoo with our family. It was Kate and Elizabeth and Susie and I, and we had been looking at the giraffes and we're walking by and looking at the lions, and they have a white, uh, you know, tiger, and we're enjoying all the animals. Kate and Elizabeth love it. Then we decided to cool off, and if you've ever been to the zoo here, you know that they've got this little water area that has these, you know, waterfalls and fountains that, you know, blow water out of the ground and all kinds of fun stuff that you can run through and cool off. And so we were headed to that kids' area, of the zoo, and as we rounded the corner, we were met with a young mother screaming at the top of her lungs, Johnny, Johnny, where are you? She had lost her child, her young child, and if you'd ever have witnessed that, it will send chills up your spine. She literally was in a frantic, looking everywhere for her young son. There was no crevice that she didn't look uh, look in, no corner that she hadn't looked in, and she was looking in trash cans everywhere you can imagine. There was no stone unturned, literally. She had even left her other two kids who were playing in the water to find the one son that was lost. Thank goodness she eventually found him. Well, Jesus is doing something similar here in Luke chapter 15. In this chapter, we see Jesus going after lost things. And thank goodness he does. Because there is a sense, friends, in which every single one of us in this room is lost. I think you'll see what I mean as we dig into our passage tonight. So please stand with me as I read God's Word. And if you don't have a Bible, there's actually pew Bibles tonight. Um, if There's one in front of you if you don't have one. Starting in verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. 
And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and he came and he drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing and he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant and he said to him your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound but he was angry and refused to go in his father came out and entreated him but he answered his father look these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your commands yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends but when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes you killed the fattened calf for him and he said to him son you are always with me and all that is mine is yours it is fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We need you. I need you. Uh, I feel weak tonight. And my voice feels weak. And I need you to help me. So Holy Spirit, would you... Uh, fill me, would you give me boldness, would you give me courage, would you give me strength, particularly my voice. I pray that your spirit would be at work in all of us, convicting us and teaching us and changing us. Help us to see which brother we are in this passage and may it lead us to repentance. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As we begin tonight, you need to uh, realize that um, I need to give credit where credit is due. Most of the things I will share with you actually come from 
the insights into this passage come from a man named Tim Keller. He's a pastor of a church up in New York City. And he has a book called The Prodigal God where he does work on this passage. And it is practically impossible to improve upon. It is a must read for all of you. So I need to say that right at the beginning. But this passage has probably been as much misunderstood as any other passage in the Bible. Because we are used to hearing this passage entitled, The Prodigal Son. As if the story, uh, most of the time we read it as if it's only about the younger son. But look at verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. And we are going to see that both of the brothers are lost. They are just lost in different ways. Look at verse 1 of chapter 15. Remember what we say. Context, context, context when we study our Bibles. Verse 1 helps set the stage in the context for this passage. Luke notices and notes right off the bat that there were two audiences listening to Jesus. Tax collectors and sinners, and, it says, Pharisees and teachers of the law. And this is significant because Jesus is showing us that there are, in fact, two fundamental ways of running from Jesus and running from God. First, you can be like the tax collectors and sinners who openly rebel and run against God and squander their inheritance with prostitutes. Or you can be like the Pharisees who are only concerned with moral conformity and who are actually running from God and avoiding Him through their goodness. Both brothers represent two fundamental ways of rebelling against God. And tonight we're going to get to know them both, particularly the older brother. So number one, if you have your outline, how are we lost? Well, first, there's younger brother lostness. The younger brother is the person who is committed only to themselves. It's only about them and no one else. Look at verse 12. What are the first words out of the younger brother's mouth? Give me what is mine. You see, it's all about them. And to get the full impact of this request, we've got to dig a little bit deeper and understand the background of this. To the original audience listening to this passage... They would have been shocked to hear this. Because for you to request your inheritance while the father is alive, you see, that was only done when the father dies, is when you get your inheritance. And to request it while he's still alive is like saying this, Father, I wish you were dead. It's like looking at your father and saying, Father, I want all the things that you have. I want your money, but I don't want you. He wants out. Give me what is mine, the younger brother says. Now, this is the first and most obvious way of running from God. And it represents the person who looks at the traditions around them 
and says, I'm tired of being in the straitjacket. I want out. I'm tired of it. I want to finally live life for myself. I want to go where I can create my own rules and be my own authority. It's the rugged individualist. That's who this person is. They say, I am the one that decides what is right and wrong for myself. I am the one that decides what will truly make me happy. That's the younger brother. And there's no way in a room like this that that is not happening. Some of you are younger brothers and you have come to Sanford. It is quite the perfect far off country for you to come and indulge yourself at every turn. But then there's the other group in this room tonight. And that is the person or the group that is thinking, man, I wish all the younger brothers I know... (laughs) All those that aren't doing, doing it right were here tonight so that they could hear this and get their lives straightened out. Guess what? <clears throat> this parable is really more directed at you than your rebellious acquaintances. How do I know? Well, look at verses 2 and 3. The Pharisees grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Then look at the next verse. So he told who? Who did he tell the parable? He told them the parable. It was directed towards the Pharisees. And that leads to the other way. And I'm going to have to get a drink. The other way that we can avoid and run from God. Y'all pray for my voice. The other way that we can run from God. Look at verse 25. You see, the older brother hears from the servants that the younger brother has returned And that there's this huge party going on and he is furious and he's saying, now it is my turn to disrespect and disgrace my father. And so he comes, look at verse 28, he refuses to go into the house. Here's what's going on. The biggest party that this guy, the father has ever thrown, ever hosted, the biggest celebration ever, and his son The older brother stays on the outside, showing that he disagrees with the father, showing that he doesn't like what's going on because he refuses to go in and participate. And the father comes out and pleads with him to come in and celebrate. And he continues to refuse to go in. So why is the older brother so mad? Why is he so upset Because he sees the cost of all that is happening. And he starts adding it up. And he says, you never even gave me a goat. How can you give, how dare you give the fattened calf? You see, he's adding things up. And he's saying that I have worked myself to death for you. I have never disobeyed you. I have done all that I can. My brother has done nothing. In fact, not only has he done nothing, but he has gone and squandered the inheritance 
And he just didn't squander it. He did it with prostitutes. He did it with whores. You see what the elder brother is doing? He's referring to his own record and he's saying, I deserve this. I've never disobeyed. I have rights. You see, the older brother was just as lost as the younger brother. But he was just taking a different path to happiness. The older brother was saying, I'm going to play by the rules. I'm going to stay at home. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to keep my nose clean. Why? Because I want the Father to bless me. You see what's going on? That's just as self-centered. He's obeying just so he can get something from his Father. Just so he can gain his favor. He was using his good deeds to force the Father's hand. Here's the point. Careful obedience is often just a strategy for avoiding God. Flannery O'Connor, in her novel, Wise Blood, has this great quote when she talks about a character. Listen to what she says. She said, there was a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. The older brother was avoiding Jesus with his goodness. And you need to know, and if I start whispering, you know why. You need to know that both brothers aren't equal. And here's why they're not equal. Because here's the truth. The older brother was the one in the deepest trouble. The younger brother actually has an advantage. Why? Because the younger brother knows he screwed up. He knows he messed up. He knows he needs Jesus. But the older brother thinks he's well, thinks he's whole, thinks he's doing okay. And he's missing Jesus. Here's the truth. This story shows us a very subtle and a far more deadly rebellion in the heart of the older brother. Far more deadly, but very subtle. So what does it look like? What does it look like to be an older brother? Well, let's look. There's six things. One, the first sign that you're an older brother is this, that you get angry and bitter when life doesn't turn out the way you want it. You see, the older brother is the one that believes that because they live a good life, because they keep their nose clean, then they're going to get a good life. And so older brothers say things like this. Why them and not me? Why her and not me? Why does she get all the guys and all the dates and nobody asked me out? Why does he get all the girls 
And I can't get anyone to say yes. Why are all my friends married or getting married or engaged and I have no one? Why, God? I've done it all for you. I've tried to be faithful. You see, the older brother is the one that basically says it's God's fault that life is bad. Secondly, older brothers have this attitude of superiority. They see themselves as better than everyone else. And just like the older brother here, they point out the younger brother's shortcomings so that they can feel good and better about themselves. And it's not just verbal, but it's in your mind and in your heart. Older brothers say things like this. I thank God that I'm not like that person. I thank God that I'm not like that person I know on my hall or in my class or in RUF. I mean, she is so weird. I mean, how could you possibly walk out in public wearing that? Or he is so stupid. How many questions is this guy going to ask this semester? Doesn't he get it? This is a basic concept. You should have learned this in high school. But this guy on the front row can't seem to get it. Get with the program. You see, older brothers compare themselves to others so that they can feel better about themselves. Another symptom that you might be an older brother is you lack assurance of God's love for you. See, the older brother is the one that says, you never threw me a party. The older brother is the one that has no joy in his relationship with God. There's no dancing. There's no celebration. Why? Because they're not sure that God loves them and that God delights in them. Every time they don't get a prayer answered, they freak out and start analyzing and say, what did I do, what did I do wrong? God must not be answering my prayer because I screwed up somewhere. Or when they do blow it, they can't forgive themselves. And so they keep repenting because they never think it's enough. And they keep beating themselves up over the same thing over and over. Guilt crushes them. They're not convinced that God really loves them. Another sign, number four, is that you avoid criticism. Older brothers have to win every argument. They have to win every debate. They never can admit that they're wrong. Why? Because they can't take criticism. They can't take criticism. In fact, they carefully rearrange their life to avoid criticism, to avoid getting hurt. You hear me talk about it a lot in here uh, at RUF, that we need to have true friends in our life that we can go to because we're not objective about ourselves, right? Y'all know that. No one's objective about themselves. We all have blind spots. We need people we can go to and say, tell me what I can't see. Tell me my blind spots. Also, tell me, would you please, tell me what others say when I'm not around. An older brother can never do that. Why? Because they would be crushed by criticism. They're too scared. 
to ask what people really think. Criticism crushes them. Fifth, they lack prayer. Older brothers, the idea of a prayer life actually is a drag to them because every time they bow their head, all they see is disapproval. All they see is God frowning on them. And if they do pray and have a prayer life, it's often dry. It's often boring. And it tends to only happen when things aren't going well. It's like, oh man, I've got a hard week. I better start praying. And when they do pray with regularity, it's often just a to-do list. Here's my list, God. This is what you can do for me. Please bless me. Here's what I want. Never do older brothers just joyfully break out in praise and say, thank you, God, for what you've done. Their prayer life is often characterized by the list. And then sixthly, lack of evangelism. Older brothers are terrible evangelists. John Piper says you commend or you tell people what you cherish. Think about it. I love 24. I tell more people about 24 than anything else in my life. You got a new CD that you like? How many times are you telling people, have you heard this new song? You commend what you cherish. And the reason why older brothers don't commend Jesus is because they don't cherish him deeply. Why? Because they don't need him. Because they're doing just fine on their own. And when they do talk about Jesus, it often comes across as packaged and dry. Because it is. And so, thirdly, what do we need? I'll take another drink. What do we need? Well, the first thing, forgive me. The first thing that we need is we need to own up to the original proposition. And the original proposition is, is that you are lost. And there's no amount of rebelling or strict rule keeping that can make the problem go away. That's the first thing. Own it. If you're an elder brother, if you're a younger brother, own it. Secondly, you need to know that someone is looking for you. You think about it. You know, why do, why do when people get lost, the child gets lost? Do you notice that the family tries to get on the news? They put signs up. Why do they do that? Because they hope that the lost child or family member will see that and they will have hope. Lost people need to know that someone is looking for them. Look at the passage. The son is running or walking over the hill. And what does the father do? The father's not sitting there like this. I'm just going to, you know, tear into him once I see him come over the hill for what he's done to me. The father runs and pursues the younger son and kisses him and hugs him. And puts the best robe on him. But he also pursues the older brother. 
he go, goes out and he begs them to come in to the party. And so what we see is that the moral, religious person needs Jesus just as much as the younger brother. And so no matter how messed up you are, how bad you screwed up, or whether you've done everything right and you're full of pride, you need to know Jesus is looking for you. He's pursuing you, and he loves you. And then thirdly, what else do we need? Well, we need to repent. And what do I want to do? What I want to do is suggest that what you need to repent of the most is the things that you like the most about yourselves. You need to repent of your goodness. What is it for you? What are the things you like most about yourself? How do you figure it out? Well, you figure it out like this. When you've blown it and you don't feel acceptable, what do you do? What do you do to make yourself feel acceptable to others or before God? Elder brothers often have this internal dialogue with themselves in their hearts that goes something like this. Well, I know I've blown it, but at least I'm not as bad as... I'm not that bad. At least I fill in the blank. And whatever you fill in the blank with is what you need to repent of tonight. Well, at least I don't cuss. I use good language. At least I don't drink. At least I get good grades and I go to class. At least I'm nice and I'm not angry all the time like that person. I know this passage, if it's saying anything, it's saying that those things are our biggest problem. George Whitfield used to say that a Christian is not someone who just repents of your sin. But a Christian is one who also repents of their goodness. A Christian not only repents of the bad things, but they also repent of the good things that, you're, that they're looking to, to justify themselves before God and to make themselves feel right. We need to learn, friends, to repent of what's underneath the good deeds. And often what is underneath the good deeds is a desire to control God or be our own God and to force his hand to bless us. We need to get to the place where we admit that even our best deeds, as Isaiah says, are filthy rags before the Father. So who do we need? Lastly, look at chapter 15. If you look at this, in each of the other stories, the lost sheep and the lost coin, someone goes out. Someone goes out to find the lost thing. But in this story, you're reading it and you're expecting someone to go looking for the younger son, right? And no one does. Who should have? Who should have gone looking for the younger son? The older brother should have gone looking for his younger brother. Right? 
The older brother should have said, I know he's been a fool, Father. I know he has squandered your wealth. But I'm going to look for him. And I'm not going to stop until I find him. And I'm almost certain that your inheritance is gone. But Father, I'm going to, at my own expense, bring him back into the family. That's what the older brother should have done, but he doesn't. And you know what Luke is doing? Luke intentionally leaves that out. Because he is putting before us a flawed older brother. Because he's wanting us to yearn and to long for the true older brother. And it's Jesus. Jesus came from heaven to earth, not just to the next country over, so that he could pursue us and find us. And he just didn't pay some monetary finite fee, but he paid with his life because our debt was so great. And he paid with his life so that we could have the privilege to stand as sons and daughters before the Most High God and be able to cry out to him, Abba, Father, which means Daddy. You know, the real sting of this passage and the healing of the passage comes when we realize that we, for the most part, are a room full of older brothers. And this campus is a campus full of older brothers, for the most part. How do I know? And how do I know that that's what we are because of this? Where are the younger brothers? Very few of us are bringing in younger brothers into our fellowship. In fact, very few of us have relationships and friendships with younger brothers. And why aren't we bringing them into our fellowship? Well, first and foremost, it's because your campus minister is the chief elder brother. I am the chief older brother in your midst. And I am so sorry that I am not modeling what it's like to pursue younger brothers before you. And secondly, we failed to hear the Father's approval for us. And I have. Because I don't believe the Father when He says, when He says, my son, my daughter, all that I have is yours. Come, eat the finest of foods. Come, drink the finest of wines. I really don't think Jesus is looking for me. But He is. And He's looking for you. He loves us despite us being such a mess. How do I know? Because this parable proves it. Let's pray.
Father, help me, help all of us to identify who we are in this passage. We're all running from you in some way, either through trying to be good or being bad and openly rebelling. Father, help us to understand and repent of that and confess that. I stand before you confessing that. That I am the chief of older brothers. And oh, how I need to be changed. But oh, how your grace is so sweet. Father, would we feel your approval for us? Would we feel your love and your compassion running after us like we see the Father doing in this passage? And Father, I pray that we would worship you now in spirit and in truth and from the bottom of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.